Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Take the next 40 odd minutes to get your hands on some tips and tools that will get you working at your best in both your business and your personal life. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Nice to have you in the house. Thank you for hitting the download button. We appreciate you being here. It gives us, uh, it gives us something to do, let's face it, and uh, it gets our mojo working. <laughs> and, um, what do we do here for those people who are new to the show? And we do get new listeners each week on the Mojo Radio Show. Robbo and I just find people that we think are interesting. Something to do with business or the mind or creativity, spirit, wellness, food. Just people that we think have got it going on. They've got an opinion. They've got an angle on something. They've got their mojo working. We can steal it, take it, plagiarise it, call it our own to get our own mojo working. So this week is no exception. This week we are delving into sales. Let's face it, folks, we're all in sales no matter what we do. Before we start the show, Robbo, how's things behind the panel there, mate? Things behind the panel are going really well. I, um, I've got a new lease on life. It's something we're going to talk about in the next week or two. I've been turned on to kombucha. Oh, look out. Yeah, and I've got to tell you, I, I'm loving it, and so are the kids. Is that the kombucha or the kombucha robo? Is it kombucha? <laughs> it's kombucha, get kombucha. it right, mate. Oh, I tell you what, though. I've, robo. I've had a... Uh, I've had a bit of an epiphany. We're going to have a talk to these guys in a couple of weeks, but um, in the meantime, I've been sampling the product. And uh, wow, wow, I'm really impressed with the changes it's made to my gut. It's um, it's really good. So the product that, to which Robbo refers is Mojo Kombucha, which you will find in the supermarket shelves. And I, I met this guy just recently, and he talked about this industry, about kombucha and all the prebiotics, probiotics, all that. And I, I, I'm quite fascinated by that area, and I've been making my own for quite a while. I said to Robert, let's get him on the show. We're going to talk to Andrew in the next couple of weeks, get him on, talk about that, because there's no doubt the gut microbiome is the next frontier that we all need to get a handle on, because it's said, as you'll hear, and we'll talk to Andrew about this, but it is the root cause of a lot of issues we're having in society in terms of our health and wellness, from our mind to our, our bodies to our symptoms. So um, that is coming up. Hey, uh, one quick thing before we start. I heard an interesting comment from a recruiter during the week. On last week's show, it was an absolute ripper with Chris J. Reed, who is known as being one of the greatest influencers in the world of LinkedIn. And I, I honestly, folks, if you haven't heard that show yet, go back and listen. If you heard it, go back and listen again because there is gold in them their hills. I was talking to a recruiter during the week about LinkedIn and he talked about the fact that he was about to interview someone for a job and this is a high level corporate recruiter. He said, I'm quite looking forward to the meeting this afternoon because the girl's photo on her profile had her in a swimsuit with a bottle of champagne in her hand (laughs) as if she'd been necking it. And he said, I just, and the reason I bring it up is LinkedIn is a tool to promote your personal brand. And his question after hearing Chris J. Reid, he went, what sort of personal brand is she portraying with that photo? And it could be through Insta, it could be through Facebook, but 
We don't think about these things, but recruiters are. And we're going to talk about how it affects the sales process as well today, because that's an important part of what we're doing. Cracking show with Chris J. Reed. He was the master. Mm, get out there and download it again. Hey, I've got to tell you, since working on my LinkedIn profile from that interview, I've, uh, I've racked up an all-star status. There you go. Yeah. Whatever that whatever that means. Good I, on I you, don't mate. know what it means. I actually had to email Chris and said, it tells me I'm an all-star. What's that mean? Question mark. <laughs> so why are you raising your, your bottle of Mojo Kombucha to me as if it's like, yeah, good on me. I've got a like. So, uh, all right, let's get into it. The Mojo Radio Show. Kian McLaughlin is our guest on today's show. And here's a quote I found somewhere in his material, which I loved. He said, an old CEO mate of mine said, you either work in sales or in support of sales. There are no other jobs in this company. And how right it is, whether you are doing something as a side hustle, whether you're working on a school PNC, on a charitable committee, whether you are an entrepreneur or working in a Fortune 500 company, there's only one job we are all in, and that is sales. It makes the world go round. And We really haven't dug into sales on this show. And I contacted a mutual friend of ours, uh, Andy Griffiths, and I said, mate, who do we know that's a gun in sales? And he went, there's only one guy I need to talk to, and that is Kean McLaughlin. So thankfully, we have Kean on the line. He runs a business called Trinity Perspectives. He is a win-loss analysis expert. His his lane is sales. And, mate, we're delighted to have you here. Kean, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Uh, thanks for having me. Kean, let's just, um, let's just put everybody in the picture. What, what sort of work are you doing day to day and who would you be doing it with or for? Well, we do a couple of different things, but one of the areas we do a lot of work in is something which we like to call win-loss analysis. And that's probably a fancy way of saying we go in and we speak to customers after they've made a significant purchasing decision and we speak to them on behalf of one of the vendors that they've been working with. Um, and really what we're trying to do is just get a better understanding of you know why they made their decision and help the vendor extract some value from the sales process that they've been through. So sometimes they win a piece of business and obviously they get the value in terms of the you know the the signed check from the customer. But mm-hmm. even in those situations, they often don't know well why did we really win? And in a losing scenario, they very very rarely have any understanding about what actually happened. So that's the kind of the piece of the puzzle that we're trying to provide. It's providing insight candid feedback and something tangible that they can take away and go and do something about maybe maybe change things up for the next time around. Perfect, because that's exactly the stuff I want to talk to you about today. So we're in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Please hear it. We dialed the right number, guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mate, um, I just want to wind back a little bit. So I have been around the retail game, the media game, for a, more, more years than I can care to remember. What I find quite fascinating is that salespeople seem to carry a somewhat negative connotation when you talk to people about a salesman calling or a salesman approaching them. Why why is it that we have built this negative perception about salespeople? Well, I think it's actually, it's a societal thing and it probably goes back, you know, a hundred or more years. If we look at some of the you know, the old door-to-door sales tactics that were around of old, the, you know, the snake oil salesman that you always hear referred to. The, the connotation um, for salespeople is that, you, you know, either they will interrupt your, your day, and so, you know, 
a lot of people have their names on no call registers so they don't get you know interrupted over dinner time with the kids by someone trying to flog them something. But even in even in a, a more of a business to business context, you know, rather than the business to retail context, there there tends to be this sense that people are just out there and they're trying to flog something and they'll you know they'll do whatever it takes to make the sale. Um, whereas the reality is that you know there is a small minority who maybe would, would you know fall into that category, but the vast majority of sales professionals are people who are you know representing a product or a service that they really believe in. They're delivering huge amounts of value to the customers they work with, and and they have a lot of integrity in terms of what they do day to day. But unfortunately, for too long, the perception has been um, that yeah, that, that they're not really adding a huge amount of value. Do you think that's changing today? Ken, I mean, as you look at the market, the people you are mixing with on a day-to-day basis, do you think that now is changing, that perception? Look, I think, it's, I think it is slowly but surely changing, but I think what's changing more rapidly is, is the sales industry itself. Um, and where, where I see that change being led is actually it's being customer-led rather than being led by the industry. Um, what's happening in the, the great book by a guy called uh, Daniel Pink, um, which is called To Sell as Human, and he talks about the fact that Back in the day, one of the reasons that sales had such a negative um, connotation was that knowledge is power and all of the power resided with the vendors, with the salespeople, because we had all the information about the products and services and we were able to sort of dole that out in little bite-sized chunks and therefore, you know, the power rested with us. That's all changed. The advent of the internet, uh, peer-to-peer reviews, online buying, all of that sort of stuff meant that all of that, you know, um, knowledge has been put in the public um, domain and all of that power has been stripped away from the vendors, and so as a result, they've been forced to sort of change and evolve their sales approach to engage in a more genuine, authentic value-adding way than they ever did in the past. So it's net net. That's a great thing for for customers and for the industry alike. But interestingly, it's been it's been more led by customers than it has been actually led by by the vendors themselves. With the win loss analysis, I suspect that is basically about seeking feedback. And you talk about having to create uh, an appetite for negative feedback. How do I, how do I develop the psychology around that, Kim? Because for most people, feedback they don't want to hear is not always received well or something we openly welcome. What's your psychological take on that? So how do, how do you work with customers or me as a client to make me have a better appetite for it? Well, look, I think the first thing I'd say is, uh, you know, we, we've been doing this for, you know, the best part of six years. And it's, it's incredibly rare that a customer provides just negative feedback. But what they often provide is constructive feedback. And that constructive feedback may be positive, may be negative. Often it's a combination of the two. But, but the, you know, the key difference there is the fact that it's constructive. So it's something which they're saying, if you were to do this differently, it would have improved our impression of you as a business. Or if you do this differently next time, or if you change here or modify. So they're actually providing specific, actionable, tangible things to do rather than just that salesperson was terrible. We didn't enjoy working with them or they didn't respond to our phone calls. So it's, because it's in the customer's best interest to do that because ultimately what that means is if they ever engage with this business again in the future, they're going to get a better quality service. They're going to get a better outcome. And most customers um, not only recognize that, but they embrace the opportunity to give that feedback. So I think the first thing we would ever say to a vendor is, look, guys, this is not going to be uh, just a a negative um, 
conversation, there's going to be a huge amount of value that you can extract from this and use. So what I'm hearing is it really is up to the vendor with how they approach it. So you've talked about constructive criticism or the value that can come from it. So I guess it really comes back to the psychologically how the vendor approaches the information you're bringing back to them, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I can give you I can give you a fairly personal example of that before. So I spent about 15 years or thereabouts in the, in the corporate um, technology world on, on the sales side. And before I jumped ship to set up my own business, I started to run some of these reviews to kind of try and prove to myself that, you know, it was valid and also that customers would be prepared to share that sort of information. And I did one particular review on a deal that I was very, very confident we were going to win. And it turned out we didn't win it. And when I went and sat down with the, the key decision maker and asked him to sort of, you know, just, just share with me um, what happened, he walked me through the fact that um, the company that they, they had ended up um, buying from had just laid really intelligent landmines all the way through the process that we'd stepped on. So they would say, oh, well, you know, the, you know our, our competitor, yeah, they got a great solution, but, you know, you'd be a very, very small customer in, in their um, in their customer list. Where do you think you'd be? Would you be top 10, <laughs> top 50, top 100? You'd probably be so far down the food chain, they won't even sell to you directly. They'll sell to you through one of their partners. And in we walk with one of our partners, and we don't establish why we're bringing a partner in. We don't give any context to that. So that's strike one against us. Then they talk about the fact that, our technology is a very complicated technology and very hard to implement and hard to get value from. They said, you know, it's probably going to take three of them to present the actual solution to you. And we brought five people into the first demo, boom, strike two. And on and on and on. And they just did an incredibly good job of positioning what could have been a strength on our behalf as a weakness. And we weren't savvy enough to recognize what they were doing and then have a, have a counter strategy. So this, I suppose what I'm saying, Gary, is that you know, the feedback that we get that we collect as part of this, it's not just kind of interesting. It's its incredibly compelling in terms of how quickly you can go away and act on that. Because what I was able to do the next time we competed against this organization was I was able to invert our strategy. I was able to change a whole lot of little things all the way through so that we won because they were going to use the same winning formula to beat us, but now we had their their playbook. And that's the problem. You know, if you look at a sporting analogy, we don't we don't look at the game tape. We don't watch back what's happened with insights from both sides and then actually change the way we approach things. We just, you know, we just hit and hope. And that's, yeah, it's a flawed strategy. Go, brother. Gold, touching. That's gold. Something occurs to me then, Kim, when you were talking about that, I love that analogy of laying landmines. And it takes yeah. me back to my days of when Robbo and I used to work for the Halcyon days of Triple M and Osterio, who were very good strategists who would talk often about marketing warfare. And part of that marketing warfare strategy is that all strategy is determined by the market leader and you have to know your battleground. And what occurs to me with that is that part of knowing the battleground and what you were picking up on there is by learning from something which didn't go as well as you'd like, so let's call it a loss, you were able then to map the battlefield to make you better for last for next time. Whereas a lot of people kick the ground and get a cat's bum and move on going, well, they didn't know what they were doing anyway. Whereas 
Exactly. The learning, the learning from that. I love that idea of they were laying landmines, man. That's just great strategy <laughs> and something you could truly learn from, isn't it? It is. And, and what's really interesting, because if you looked at that on paper beforehand, that particular opportunity, the, you know, the customer was actually using our technology overseas. So it should have been a lay down the there for us to win that piece of business. And that other company, they could have qualified out and they would have been well within their rights. You know, we're too small, we're this, we're that. But instead what they did was they got strategic and they created a plan to, uh, you know, to turn our strengths into weaknesses. Very much the kind of the David and Goliath concept, um, and they did that incredibly effectively. And what would have happened in that scenario, which you know is what normally happens, is we would have got a bloody nose and we would have said, you know, oh, this was this, you know, there's a problem with this decision-making process, or they were always going in a different. Or we would have made up some nonsense, and that would have become the default, you know, narrative for this account, and we would have moved on. And instead, we went back, we scratched the surface, and all of a sudden, we learned all of this stuff. And that's really my whole philosophy when it comes to this. If you've done a halfway decent job in whatever we do in life, this isn't just sales, this is more broadly in business, we've earned the right to feedback. And, and otherwise, if we're just leaving these nuggets of gold and intelligence on the table, it's more full of us. I love that saying too, I've earned the right for feedback. I'm just writing it down. That's, that's another piece of gold. What, something that's come to mind with that, and I've heard you speak before and you say that we try to forget our losses and hearing you tell that case study or story in that situation you could have forgotten your losses you could have just gone wiped it from a memory moved on to the next sale the next pitch but you didn't and I think you give us a good understanding of well the alternate perspective of what you could do the other question I've got with that Ken is I lose a pitch and I sit down, I'm looking at what went on. What's the best question for me to ask myself or for a company to ask itself after a loss? I think, I think you know, the single most important question is, do I really want to know? Do I really want to know what happened? <laughs> and, and that might seem, it might seem like a throwaway, you know, uh, or a trite response, but it's not because no, the reality right. is that, uh, uh, you know, 90% of the, the businesses out there statistically are not doing this in a consistent manager in a consistent manner, I should say, in the B2B world. And that's, you know, it's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. If there, you know, the tens of billions of dollars that have been spent on tender responses and bids, you know, throughout the world across lots of different industries, you know, financial services and technology and telecommunications, all of this work that's going on constantly bidding for new opportunity and new business. And yet only a fraction of those companies are actually going through any consistent programmatic approach to extract learnings. Why is that the case? And, and, and this was something that, you know, I, I struggled with for quite a while to try and understand that. I thought there must be some deep and, you know, fundamental reason. But actually, I think it's just, it's awkward. It's awkward to ask. And then sometimes it's politically sensitive to get the answers. And so oftentimes what we'll do is we'll just default to the internal discussion. We agree amongst ourselves what we think happened. And that becomes the, you know, the default setting we move on. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's not a, it's not a long-term strategy, particularly because of the way that the, the business, you know, world that we're in is evolving. So much more of, of the decision-making process is being based on, you know, softer skills, things around cultural fit, around credibility, around, we spoke to, you know, we spoke to your references and then we ignored what they say because, you know, everyone can put a good reference for it. But then we went out and peer reviewed you in the market. And it was those peer reviews that we actually, you know, we, we put a lot more faith in. So there's a whole lot of stuff out there that's happening. And if we don't want to understand how these decisions are made, if we'd rather bury our heads in the sand, 
then you know what, that's okay because we're not going to be around for too much longer anyway. We talked a minute ago about earning the right to feedback and I love that. Are there people who haven't earned that right? Yeah, unfortunately there are. And, you know, what's really interesting is if if I look back over the last five or six years and and I tease out the, you know, the recurring themes of why, why did we lose? versus why we think we lose. You know, we think we lose for all sorts of different reasons. It was price, they were leaning towards an incumbent, you know, supplier and a million other things. If I talk to, you know, to decision makers about why, why you lost, you didn't listen, you talked too much about your solution and not enough, enough, not enough about our problem or had a deep, deep enough understanding of our problem, you weren't responsive, you were unprofessional. You know, it's, it's, it's basic sales craft stuff. It's not your product was, you know, terrible or your pricing was too far out because... The reality is if your product doesn't fit the bill or your pricing is way off, you won't make it to the long list and you definitely won't make it to the short list. So that's what gets you your ticket to the dance, the product and the price and that sort of stuff. The next question is, how do you differentiate? And so much of the differentiation comes down to the quality of your people, cultural fit, your knowledge of our industry, your ability to challenge us and bring new insights, how you partner, all of this stuff, which is people related. It's EQ, not IQ. I've heard you speak of... And, and I'll quote you here. You say, we buy with our hearts and we sell with our heads. Could you just elaborate on that for me, mate? Yeah. I think it, it's really interesting that we, uh, you know, if we, look at, if we look at the evolution of, of humanity, you know, we haven't been around that long. If we, you know, we think back to, um, you know, uh, how long we've actually been roaming the earth. Our limbic brain was the first part of our of our brain to form, and it's still responsible for upwards of ninety percent of how our decisions are made. And our limbic brain is all about gut feel and intuition and instinct. And so, if we are not appealing to that part of people's brains when we're going through the sales cycles that we go through, if we're focusing on features and functions and benefits and, and rational criteria we're missing a huge opportunity because the reality is for the vast majority of people, for the vast majority of decisions, we actually make the decision in our limbic brain. Do I like them? Do I trust them? Uh, am I confident they'll, you know, do a good job that they'll manage our risks, all of these kind of gut feel things. And then we justify it with the, you know, with the rational side of our brain. So in fact, what we need to be doing is we need to be selling to both those. We need to be connecting on a, an emotional level. We need to be demonstrating to them that, you know, we have a, a vision and we bring some interesting stories that would be good to work with and you know we're passionate about certain things that we share some values with them all of this sort of stuff in addition to the fact that we have a bloody good product and it's a decent price point and then we're giving them what they need to justify their decisions otherwise we're just rolling the dice in the hopes that we might possibly win a piece of business could you tell me the story of jeff bezos and i've heard you speak of essentially his philosophy of how he approaches the customer? Yeah, this really stood out for me when I heard it first. It kind of stopped me in my tracks. Um, there's a great quote uh, with regard to Jeff Bezos, the um, founder and CEO of Amazon, where he says, in every meeting that he's in, he always makes sure there's, a, there's a, an empty chair in the room, and that empty chair is to represent the customer because the customer needs to be at the heart of everything they do and needs to be at the very center of you know, how they make the decisions and how they think. And, and, and I think that's a profoundly, I mean, it's such a simple, simple analogy, but it's such an effective thing to do to say, no, 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 no. have we thought about, have we thought about the customer here? Is that, is that something that's inward facing? Or is that something that's going to add value to or reflect well for our customers? And it, it just, just today I was having lunch with a couple of other um, people who are in the sales industry. And that was something that we, we spoke about how internally facing we are as an industry 
and there's you know there's almost like a you know there's an emperor's new clothes kind of feel about that where you're all agreeing with one another and, and you know a certain position becomes the default accepted position and then you test that with customers and they're like oh that's nonsense we're not interested that doesn't add any value but hang on we've all been agreeing amongst ourselves well it doesn't matter because if the customer's not at the table if we're not tapping into what they care about then it's a futile exercise yeah i'll tell you what you'd fall off your chair if you were in that meeting and the customer answered a question wouldn't you just <laughs> <laughs> well i'll just give you i'll give you another quick quick example of that i did a did a workshop for a client not that long ago and one of the things that asked me to speak about was the voice of the customer because obviously we're incredibly uh lucky in that we we get to talk to a lot of um customers about how they make their decisions and i said look very happy to do that but let's invite a customer in as well let's invite you know the cio from one of your customers into the room and, and i'll interview him and then or her and and then all of the people who are participating in that workshop can ask questions and that in itself was you know was a bit of a, a kind of a that stopped them in their tracks they're like wow can we do that and i was like of course you can do that well, in fact we should be encouraging customers to be part of that conversation much more frequently and they they're very happy to oblige in your work I just want to sort of camp here for a second. In your work day-to-day, Kian, you are seeing a lot of organisation, you're seeing a lot of leaders, ideally a lot of great salespeople. Describe to think in your mind, visualise a truly great salesperson in whatever category. Describe for me them and what their day looks like. For a great salesperson in today's day and age, in 2017, what are their non-negotiable rituals? What are the what are the things that person always has front of mind? I love the Jeff Bezos story from Amazon and I'm going to sort of go into usable practical stuff. There's somebody listening who, I mean, we're all selling of something, Robbo, myself, you, we're all selling something. But there are truly outstanding salespeople. What are the attributes that sit absolutely every single day non-negotiable? Look, I think one of the first one is is a thirst for knowledge. You know, they're really, really, really great salespeople. They're always learning. They're ideally they're learning about you know their customers. They're learning about their customers' customers. Uh, they're learning about the industry. They want to be able to bring insights to the table. I, I, I personally believe that the era of the, you know, the sales generalist is, is pretty much over. So they, those kind of big game hunters who were selling everything to a small number of organizations across maybe a couple of different verticals, it, it's just too hard to do that with the breadth of, of, of the solutions that a lot of companies have. So, so what we're looking for is um, sales people who have an expertise, who have an opinion, who can challenge it, but you know, challenge a customer in a way that they're, they've earned the right to do that because they've got enough credibility and authority at the start. I think most of the people I see are very, very humble as well. So it's not about being the loudest voice in the room. They, they tend to get access to an unfair share of their own resources internally in their organization because there's almost like this cult-like following where people want to work with them because A, they're great to work with, and B, they tend to be you know, incredibly successful. And interestingly, they, they have similar relationships on the customer side that they have internally in their own organization. So they put a huge amount of effort into, into building trust, and they tend to kind of have the heart of a teacher. So they're bringing knowledge and ideas and partnerships and all sorts of different things to the table early. And what they're doing then is they're triggering reciprocity in their customers, and their customers are more inclined to want to engage with them, to have that cup of coffee conversation where they give them the lie of the land, to share their strategic plan with them. And ideally, they're even bringing them in and saying, look, we value you, so could you be part of our, could you be part of our planning process for the next couple of years? Can you help us here? If you get to that point, and I know 
trusted advisor about, is about the biggest cliche you can possibly have in the, in the world of sales. But it's a cliche for a reason because it's an aspirational goal for so many people. And these individuals seem to do it effortlessly. Um, so, so there's a couple of things. And I think the, the last point I'd make is that they're, they're not afraid to, to learn and to you know, get rid of old skills that served them well in the past. You know, they're constantly sort of prepared to, to, to challenge their own skill sets. And that's, that's quite rare in our industry. I think a lot of people, you know, get, get fat and happy and maybe don't necessarily want to go back to the drawing board and start learning again. You, you, you see some really, really smart people who, who embrace reverse mentorship. So, you know, they get introduced to some of the young guns in the business. And instead of just saying, let me endow you with my wisdom, they say, well, hang on, let's, let's, let's trade here. You teach me some stuff and I'll teach you some stuff. I think that's a, a hugely important trait for for any you know um, successful person to have that you're humble enough to know you can learn from others. I think it's evident that Kian's seen my notes because I was going to <laughs> I was about to segue into humility, <laughs> and I just want to camp this for, for a, a very quick second because I was going to go there next. It's not surprising, but I'm so pleased to hear it. And the reason I bring it up, a Robbo, is that. We've had this theme of humility over the last couple of months, Kim, because we had a Navy SEAL on Andrew Paul a couple of shows back. He was fantastic. And we talked about the great leaders that he served with when he was serving in the Navy SEALs. And I said, you know, what were some of the great attributes of the best leaders? And he said humility. And he broke it right down to whether it be the leader or someone serving somebody else. And he brought it right back to when you heard a command and you went, Roger that, it wasn't just, yep, I've heard you and I'm on it, but it was also, it carried with it a significant part of humility to say, you're the leader, I'm going to get this done. And we've since spoken to positive psychologists about it. We have recently spoken to other guests um, in different areas of life to say, well, what part does humility play in being humble? I, I really find that, I think gratifying that we could all take that away because the thing I found, Ken, I'd be interested in your views, is that I find the great salespeople are more interested in their customer or client they are in talking about themselves. Is that kind of what you meant? Yeah, it is 100% what I meant. It's, it's the, you know, you've got two, two ears and one mouth and they use them in that ratio, if not even, you know, less talking and more listening. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're humble, they're curious, they're, genuine, they're self-aware, they're, you know, they're self-reflective as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost none of the attributes you would expect if you stopped a man or a woman on the street and said, you know, tell me, you know, from this tick list of, of, of behaviors, tell me what, you know, what you see as a great salesperson. But actually, once you start to unpack it, it makes perfect sense because, you know, anyone can close, you know, a stellar deal once in their lifetime. But it's those people who year in, year out, you can just, they're reliable, you know, consistent because what they do is, is part of their DNA. And as a result, they continue to be successful and, and they have an incredibly strong reputation in the market as well. And that follows them wherever they go. I've, I've seen numerous examples of salespeople who've moved from one organization to, to another with a completely different product portfolio and customers have gone with them because they're saying, to be honest, if you're there, I think you're there for a reason, and we're happy to come with you because the level, the level, and it, it, it's crazy. It makes no sense. We're going to spend this money. We're going to reinvest. We're going to all the change management, all the hassle off the back of the salesperson. Yeah, that makes no sense, and yet it makes every sense once you start to understand yeah, yeah. what customers are looking for because they're looking for so much more than you know what it does in the tin. They're looking for you know account management and support and guidance and 
risk management and hold my hand and don't allow me to look stupid in front of my peers and all these other things which which are you know uh, tied up with with how people make decisions it's half time on the mojo show and time to pause for a cause. Hi, this is Simon Madden. Uh, my cause at the moment is a cure for motor neuron disease. Uh, a good friend of mine, ex-player, uh, Neil Benaher, he actually has it and he's working really hard to find a cure. So look up the cure for motor neuron disease and uh, see if you can put some money into it. The Mojo Radio Show. I want to take you back a couple of questions just quickly. Mm-hmm. You were talking about experienced salesmen and how they work. I want to dumb it down a little for someone like me who's sort of owner, operator, audio engineer, stroke salesman, stroke account, stroke everything else in the business. Sure, yeah. Yep. <laughs> if I was out there and I'd, done, I'd made a pitch for some work and it was unsuccessful and I felt that I was, I was due some, some answers, is there a few bell ringer questions that you could think of that I should be asking? Yeah, there are. And, and I'll unpack those three in a moment. One thing I'd say is if, if you're doing a significant piece of business, if you're pitching for something, ask the question beforehand. Say, look, win, lose, or draw. Uh, when we get to the end of this, I'd love to get an hour of your time. And just so I can, you know, so I can um, ask you a few questions and, and make sure that I'm learning from this and, you know, getting some value out of it, you know, uh, win, lose, or draw. And by asking that question up front, it does a couple of things. Firstly, you know, it, it um, normalizes the fact that you want this feedback. And at that stage of the sales process, no one will have an issue. But also it'll separate you from everyone else they're talking to because it actually sends a very clear message about what it is that you care about and how focused you are on, on just, you know, being the best version of yourself or the best version of your company or whatever that might be. So it's subtle, but it's really, really important. I think, you know, what I would do is I'd, I'd kind of break it down if, and we, we're all familiar with the term sales cycle. So I'd break the sales cycle down into its component parts. You know, what were we like at the very start of the process? So how easy was it to get information from us, you know, downloading stuff from our website? And then when you first reached out, were we responsive? You know, did, did we make it interesting? You know, so was it all kind of, you know, boring, bland white papers or do we have some good video? Was there some useful um, customer testimonials or customer videos? Did we game with like, so what was that bit like? And then when we, you know, when we came in and we sat down and we had a chat, did, did we do a good job in understanding your, your business problems and, and, and playing back to you essentially um, what it was that we thought would be a good fit? Um, yes, you ask questions around sort of pricing. Ideally, you're going to ask some competitive, competitive questions as well. But the best way to ask those questions is usually a, kind of a compare and contrast. So, can you score us according to these five or six or seven key areas? And then can you score the vendor or, or the, you know, the company that you pick according to the same criteria? And very quickly then you start to see, you know, where you're ahead and where you're behind and you can start to fix some stuff. Other questions we ask is um, whether it's a win or a loss. Can you see us engage? Can you see yourselves engaging with our company down the track? And if so, what are a couple of things that we should go away and act on? So, it's not rocket science. It's, it's actually just straightforward conversational questions. When we do it for our, our clients, invariably we kind of do a two-pronged approach. We do a quantitative online survey and a qualitative interview. But you, you don't need to go to that level of granularity. You just want to look at your sales process and ask some questions. What did we do well? Where did we drop the ball? Is there some room for improvement? And maybe could you see yourselves working with us in the future? Gold, Gary. Gold. Gold-plated sales. Tell you what, it's all happening. Gold medal sales 101. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned earlier in the show, you talked about cultural fit. And I'd just be interested in the psychology behind that. When a customer or client says they're looking for a cultural fit, how do they actually articulate that in their mind? How do they know? What are they judging it upon? Yeah. 
That's a great question. Um, and, and look, the reality is cultural fit is a superb catch-all term that covers so many different things. And it, and it means different things. It means different things to different organizations. And I've seen cultural fit used as a, um, as a term where they were basically saying we're racist, right? We, we don't want an offshore company doing all of this work on our behalf, but we're not prepared to, we're not prepared to state that. So what we're going to call that instead is cultural fit. Um, I've used it, you know, I've seen it used to, to cover all sorts of different things, but really what, you know, what it's saying is, do we think you get us? Can we see ourselves working with you? Because most of the time, and this was a revelation to me in the last five or six years, um, you know, customers aren't buying your product. They're actually buying you. So we become the personification of the brand on our business card. And in a very real sense, if, if I see you, Gary, if I'm engaging with you and I see you as, you know, a nice guy and easy to get along with and you do your research and you're professional and you're responsive, by definition, I see any, any company that you work with and any product or service that you represent in the same light. And, and, you know, the opposite is true as well. If you're, if you're slow to respond, if, you know, the quality of your tenders are poor, this, that, and the other, I'm judging your company according to that because you are the, I suppose you're the, you know, the personification of the company. So cultural fit covers, covers a huge amount of territory. We had an example where a vendor won a really significant piece of business. And the quality of the tender response was so poor at the start that they very nearly got, got kicked out at the, you know, at, at the start line because the customer's response was, look, this was our first impression of, of the organization. And our first impression was, you know, sloppy, poor tender response. No, you know, the executive summary was poor. The win teams were non-existent. It didn't really speak to our needs. We saw just about enough to say maybe we should have a closer look and they brought them through to the start line. But then they did a whole lot of things which related to people, which related to culture. They flew the people who were going to be on the project in and they said, look, we will relocate these people here. They've already spoken to their families and they're prepared to do that, which was a huge cultural um, demonstration to the customer that, you know, they were, they were important. They did a whole lot of small, big things all throughout the process. And that was what won them the business ultimately. It occurs to me hearing that, um, Ken, that also th- there seems to be a trend in the last little while um, of the terminology personal brand. And just last week or week before last, we spoke to Chris J. Reed, who is a world world uh, LinkedIn influencer. Like he's been awarded as being one of the most influential people on LinkedIn and he speaks and writes about it. And his number one message is, is, is your personal brand. If you're going to make LinkedIn work, yeah. you are yeah. you have to get your personal brand right. I couldn't agree with you more, but hearing you speak just then, it also, the second layer to that is the stuff you're talking about with the first impressions and how you come up is not just you as the salesman, salesperson, but the reflection that has on the whole company. I, I don't know that many people actually keep that in mind is the reflection of your own personal brand and how that does today influence the whole brand that you are working with or for in a sales sense. It's, it's so true. I heard a really interesting um, uh, anecdote recently. So, so my philosophy is exactly aligned to that. But the, in this day and age, we, to some degree, we are who the internet says we are. So if I do, if I'm a salesperson and I Google you and I think I'm being really smart by stalking you on LinkedIn and elsewhere and getting some, you're going to do, you're going to do the same to me. Let's be honest. And so therefore, the first impression precedes me walking into the room. It's, it's, the, it's the content that's out there freely available about me on the net. And actually, the interesting thing is we have a lot of control over that. We can, 
we can curate the perception of ourselves on LinkedIn and elsewhere. And yet a lot of people don't do that. But I heard this really interesting um, anecdote um, in the last couple of days where someone was describing getting to the last four in a big, in a big um, tender process and losing and then doing a debrief for the customer. And the customer said, one of the things we did was we took all of the people on, on the team that you were proposing, uh, that you were putting forward, and we matched up what you'd said about them with what their LinkedIn profile said about them. And there was a huge disconnect between a lot of your team, whereas two of the other vendors, two of the other vendors, their people, it was perfectly aligned. What their LinkedIn profile said was exactly what, uh, what you had. And I, I'd never come across that before, and I found that fascinating. So yeah, there's nowhere to hide. Literally, you, you, need to be, you need to be on point. You need to be aligned. You need to be, you know, the story you're telling as a business needs to be the story you're telling as individuals because if any cracks emerge, what happens is we then start to, you know, suspect your, your authenticity, your genuineness, whether you're telling us the truth. And all of a sudden, you know, you cast doubt on the whole process. It's, it's really interesting. And it's even harder now because for companies, they say, well, that's all well and good. But then what if one of our salespeople or someone in our team says something that we don't agree with on LinkedIn? Where does, you know, the, the lines are blurring. Where, where does our opinion as a business stop and their opinion as an individual starts? It's tricky, but, but it's the nature of, of the world we live in now. So you have to come up with policies that make it feasible to do both. Because otherwise, if we stay bland and we stay in the shadows, we, we just get overlooked. That's, that is a grey area, isn't it? Because you have a lot of people, and we meet them, we've interviewed them on the show, we have a lot of people who are working in a corporate environment, but they've got a side hustle going. Or they yep. are building, they're building themselves to be a thought leader. And so yep. they are writing, they're sharing, they're blogging with the view of, I'm going to eventually do something else. This is just paying the bills. Yep. So that's a, gee, that's an interesting, uh, and for someone to do the research on LinkedIn to go through it. And I, I must say the, the Chris J. Reed interview we did, you know, I said to Robbo, we need to go back and re-listen to it for our own particular brands because when you look at what he does and how congruent he is with what he speaks of, that's next level though. When someone is actually researching you to compare what you've put up as a personal profile against what's being presented as you being a part of a team for a big tender. Yeah. Gee, that's next level. I hadn't really thought about that. But it's interesting because it's, you know, with, with the um, ease of access to information now, it, it's so simple to do that stuff. So yes, I'm going to be validating you against your LinkedIn profile. Equally, I'll be validating your references against your, um, uh, the, you know, the slide that you put up with all of the, um, the company logos because everyone puts up a company logo slide and what they don't think is going to happen is that you're going to take down all those company logos and you're going to get straight onto all your mates who work in those companies and say, Hey, what do you know? What do you know about these people? Cause they say they work with you. Do you know them? Are they good? And that happens all the time. So here we are, we're thinking, Oh, well, the more logos I put up, the better, you know, my advice to companies is put up three and tell them exactly why you're putting up those three. I think, you know, They've got a similar problem to the one you're experiencing, so we'd like to introduce you to them. These guys have done some really cool stuff, and albeit they're not in your industry, it's adjacent, and you know, I think we could get some innovation from there. Contextualize it. Great, you're doing your job. If you just bang up logos, not only are you not adding any value to your presentation, but actually you're running the risk that they'll go away, do their own due diligence, and you'll get signed out. Your book, Rebirth of the Salesman, uh, and now that we've mentioned on the show, Ken, it's going to go to the New York Times bestseller list and it will, it will peak at number one. I mean, the size, size of our audience, all our American friends, get behind us here. Sorry, Sabone. Um, <laughs> yeah, t- 10% Ken. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Um, it's in the mail. Beauty. Yeah. Uh, I'll be checking your profile. Um, we, we grabbed that book 
we go through it. I, I actually very. I think the title is great, and I and I do want to. I want do want to talk about where sales is going. In order for people to get understanding of what the book is about, what what's the nugget that you think is the most powerful piece for people to take that to whet their appetite to say, look, you really have to read this book. You know, I said I had to write one book, and I wrote a completely different book. As it turns out, um, I started writing a book about win loss analysis and why win loss analysis is important and how to build a win loss analysis program. And, and whilst that's an interesting topic of itself, it's not one that's you know hugely compelling to to a salesperson or a sales leader. What I ended up writing was a book about how the world of sales is evolving and what that means for us as salespeople and sales leaders in terms of staying relevant, um, uh, staying employed. Um, how do you how do you disrupt your own you know uh, skill set? How do you find a way? Because I'll, I'll run workshops all the time with big companies, and you know there'll be a kind of a you know an age range of anywhere from sort of twenty five to fifty five, sixty in the room, and I'll. And I ask for a show of hands, how many of you want to have a job in five years, 10 years, 15 years? And most of the hands in the room go up. And then I talk about the fact that, you know, Gartner and Forrester and Metagroup and all of these um, organizations are, are um, you know, demonstrating research that says, you know, 40, 50, 60% of B2B jobs are going to disappear in the next three to five years, which scares the crap out of everyone, myself included. So then the next question is, all right, what if they're disappearing? Which jobs are going to, you know, remain? And what am I, you know, the skills that I need in order to have one of those jobs and stay relevant. So that's what I try and unpack in the book. I go out to some of you know the, the, the best salespeople and sales leaders I've ever met and ask for their opinion, and then I flip it around and go out to a whole lot of customers and ask for their opinion, and then try and marry the two up. And exactly to, to the earlier question you asked about traits, it's not just you know, the ability to pick up the phone and cold call, but it's things around you know, character traits of curiosity and, and um, consistency and all of these other things which are are going to allow you not just to stay employed, but to stay relevant and to actually continue to kick goals for 10, 15, 20 years. That's, that, that's the thing for me. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly blessed that random people come up to me in random places. Someone did it to me just the other day. I was taking my little boy for a swim and he came up and he said, Hey, I read, I read your stuff and, and I just wanted to come and say hello. And, and, and that's really cool because if I'm having an impact on salespeople, I think salespeople have a really rough truck and I think it's one of the hardest jobs to do, but it's also the most important job. And when people give me any grief and they say, oh, you know, salespeople and sales, I said, no, that's absolutely fine. I understand your perspective, but do, we, do you enjoy paying your mortgage? Do you enjoy putting your kids through school? Do you enjoy going away on an occasional holiday? Because all of that relates to the capacity of your, your business to sell. And if that grinds to a halt, then everything else grinds to a halt. So just think about that. Um, I had an old CEO and he used to say, there's only two jobs in this business. You're either in sales or you're in supporter sales. There's no other jobs. And I think that's a, a fairly... Yeah. Fairly, you know, good perspective to take on it. If I speak to any business leader, I suspect one of the biggest challenges they have is generating leads. And yep. salespeople can have everything, you know, great looking desk, all the systems, all the processes, all the rituals, they get everything sorted. If they're not making leads and getting in the door to show their service or wares, then it's irrelevant. I'd be curious. Yep. To know, and without going into it, because I'm very conscious of your time, there's a bit more stuff I want to unpack yet, but um, is there a, and, I, and I'm thinking business today and more so the next 12, 24, 36 months, so into the future, yep. is yep. there an effective tip that you have seen or tried that you think is usable and practical that people should think about regardless of the category they're in for generating leads? Yeah, there is. There's a couple, but I think the first one I'd say is be referable. 
Um, because one of the things that I've observed, certainly in my career, is that the vast amount of the, the time and effort and energy that's put in from a sales and a marketing perspective, it tends to be actually focusing on the lowest common denominator. We're, we're, you know, we're saying, well, let's get go out to the um, to the market as a whole and let's talk to them about our wares and let's try and you know drum up some interest. But actually, if you look at the descending order of value of any type of lead, at the very top is probably someone who's used my product or service or you know worked with me and has moved to a different company, picking up the phone and saying, "Hey, Keen, we'd like to work with you again." Great, that's number one with the bullet. The next closest one to that is a very strong referral from someone who's used us. So just as like Gary with you, if you were to call me and say, hey, can you, do you know a plumber uh, that I can use? And I say, oh yeah, I know this guy, he's great, he's brilliant. You know, that, you, your search stops there. You pick up the phone and you, you speak to the plumber because I have no vested interest in, in you know giving you a plumber's details. So therefore you trust my referral. And so very, very few companies have created any sort of a mechanism, be they big companies or small companies to say, well, how do we tap into the goodwill of our not just our customers, but our network more broadly, and say, you know, we'd, we'd love if you could introduce us. And then how do you make yourself referable? I.e., okay, great, what do you want me to introduce, who do you want me to introduce you to and for what? What's the conversation? What's the, what's the sort of the, the barbecue or the elevator pitch I need to have? Make it really easy. Anyone who's, so, you know, when I talk to companies, I say, Kim, what do you do? Uh, I run a, a sales training and consulting company. Um, we, you know, we help technology companies better understand why they win and lose their big deals. Okay, cool. Easy to refer because you make it simple for people to do that. And, and that's a real missed opportunity. So make it really, really simple for people to understand, A, what you do, and B, you know, to refer you, and then C, ask. Before I let you go, I, I am curious about your own world and how you do things. Uh, who or what lesson has had the biggest impact on your career? My dad spent probably, I would say, you know, that's part of 50 years, certainly 45 plus years in, in working for one organization. And, um, you know, and, 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 you know, he did, he did a bloody good job when he was doing that. Um, but I think as much of that related to, it was a job straight out of, you know, school. And then he got married and he had children. And he had to provide for his family and all of that sort of thing. And one thing that my dad said to me early on in my, my own working life was, you need to be loyal to your own career path first and foremost before you're loyal to any organization because ultimately you are a, a resource or a commodity in any company. And, and, you know, that's not a negative thing. It's just, it's just the fact that they will look after you and they'll train you and they'll grow you, but things can change or evolve in their business. And I've seen that happen to, you know, to many of my colleagues over the years through no fault of their own that, you know, something shifts in the business and as a result, you're surplus to requirements. So for me, it's, it's, you know, you take that and you say, right, continue to invest in yourself, in your skills, in your knowledge. And there was a time in my career where I stopped doing that. And for probably four or five years, kind of probably sat on my hands and forgot things that I knew and lost a bit of confidence in my own direction and all of that sort of stuff. And, and it's hard to it's hard to gain that back. So I think maybe, maybe that, you know, be loyal to your own, um, not just your career path, but your your, your, your professional brand, your personal brand, um, and don't allow anyone to, to, to determine the path for you. I jumped out of a, a corporate job, a high-flying job, to sit in my second bedroom and say, hang on a second, what have I just done? And then start to create something. And that, that was a pretty scary thing to do. But interestingly, and people say, that's crazy, but the scarier path was not doing that, staying on the path I was on. So that was yeah. probably what pushed me to make that leap. I've heard you speak about focus, and it's kind of been a bit of a thread, I guess, that we've had through the show now for probably the last year or so. 
Ken, and I'd be interested in your best piece of advice for people to learn to focus better on their business. Uh, Maybe I'll just share all the mistakes I've made in in doing it in mine and and how I (laughs) try to overcome them. So stop, stop saying yes to everything. Stop following the shiny object and thinking, oh, that looks interesting. Oh, let me have a look at that. Stick to your, you know, have the courage of your conviction in terms of saying, this is what I'm good at, or this is my niche, or this is my area of expertise, and really follow that down. If you get to the end and, and it's not returning on investment, fair enough, but at least you've explored it to, you know, to the, to the fullest degree. Um, you know, get, get much more strict around your time. I think, you know, time is our most precious commodity, and, and we all probably waste it, and, and salespeople allow others to waste their time a lot. So there's a lot of tire kickers out there. There's a lot of unnecessary admin and all these other things that suck us away from, from doing the value-adding work. So it's kind of saying, well, you know, work out what the value-adding work is and, and you know, prioritize that. And then maybe the next level down of prioritization should be you and investing in yourself. And then all of the other stuff somehow you know, that seems to be incredibly important today becomes less important if we don't focus on it. So, you know, pick your battles. In just following on from that, uh, we are a fan of Bruce Lee, the famous martial artist and movie star, and he had a saying that said, it's not the daily increase but daily decrease. Hack away at the unessentials. What have you eliminated from your world or are you in the process of eliminating from your world, say, since New Year's? Like, what are, what are the unessentials you're getting rid of? Uh, well, I'll tell you one thing, and it, it, it's probably not the answers you were looking for. Uh, I, I'm doing a no beer year this year, so I'm, I'm, and I, can't believe, I, I can't believe I've said that out loud now. So Sacrilege. It's, it's I, yeah, Sacrilege. Yeah. And this from, from an Irishman, but, but yeah. you know, I, I've got so, so many different exciting things happening in the business and life and on all that sort of stuff, and so, you know, I was looking at, well, what can I get rid of? Um, so... So I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll get rid of beer and I'll see if I can kind of, you know, replace the, the additional energy and enthusiasm and apply that to other things. The other thing I've done, which is different for me this year, is I'm standing in front of my whiteboard in my home office at the moment and I'm looking at my week. And so my week, you know, Monday through Friday is boss day is on a Monday. So that's emails, calls, follow-ups, forecasts, partnerships. Tuesday, it's meetings. So that's going to meetings, prepping for meetings, booking meetings, workshops. Wednesday is content, creating blogs, writing the book, doing videos, webinars. Thursday is delivery. Friday is pipeline generation activity. So it's kind of segmenting my week so that I don't get sucked from thing to thing to thing and I can actually have a little bit more time to focus. Back, back to your earlier comment, to focus. If you have Wednesday as a content day, because I can't see your whiteboard, yep. but I'm remembering you said Wednesday yep. I think was content day. Does that mean you won't do anything else? It means that I'm going to book my week. I'm going to structure my week. So that that is um, first and foremost. But no, it doesn't mean that because now I run a small business and so things will pop up on occasion. And then what I do is I just judge it and I say, is this super critical? Does it have to be action today? If it does, I'll find the time, I'll make the time. But if it doesn't, then I'll push, then I'll push it to the slot that it, that it fits in. And that's, that means it's a day or two later. That's okay. Because you have to be, I think you have to be strict and you have to be you know, a bit of a, a stickler with your time because otherwise... Ironically, the more successful is not the right word, but the, the busier you get, or the more engaged, or the cooler the people you meet, the more interesting stuff that pops up, which is great on the one hand, but it's also you know it sucks you into a vortex, and, and you find you're six months into the year and you haven't done half the things you wanted to. I, f- I really like your stuff, Ken, and I like your perspective 
on how you look at the process. And just a couple of quick things before we finish. We often talk about a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport, which the principle of the book is that we could get so much more done if we just did what he calls deep work, which is work where you have no distractions. It challenges you. It requires a lot of thought and you can deep dive into one topic and spend time just pondering and creating and thinking as opposed to shallow work, which is just returning calls, flicking out emails, doing a proposal. Like you need this deep work in your day. And sadly, deep work is disappearing. I am just wondering where on that whiteboard, if any, where is the place where you do your deep work? Because you do think about win-loss analysis. And and also early in the show, you talk about, you know, great leaders are self-aware and they're self-reflective. Where is that time for you? <laughs> it's interesting. I'd say some of it's on Wednesday. So, so the next book that I'm writing at the moment, it, you know, it is on Wednesday. But actually, to be fair, it's often on evenings as well. So when I when I wrote um, Rebirth of the Salesman, I, I wasn't that long into the business. I'd just become a dad for the first time. And so what I was doing was, you know, in, in the evenings, kind of creeping back down in the office for a couple of hours. And just having a clear mind and, and, and trying to focus on on writing. Um, I, I also build in you know time to do uh, you know other stuff around content generation. Um, so it's there. Um, but I read a really interesting book, and you guys have probably have come across it: the the War of Art. How to how to you know break down your you know, your barriers and get past resistance. And that really struck a chord with me. I think it's the only book I've ever read cover to cover and then flick back to the start and started reading again because it was just so profound. In terms of resistance is all around us, you know, and it's, it's, it's things that others will put in front of us. But to be honest, the stuff that comes from inside your head in terms of resistance is pretty strong as well. And so if you're up for it, you'll find the time, you know. I, I get up at half five now. I used to get up at probably, you know, seven o'clock. So there you go. There's an extra hour and a half a day. All of a sudden, you've got more time. You can get some more stuff done. You know, uh, yeah, uh, by no means perfect and I'll full, but, you know, it, that's okay. That's all right. One last thing uh, you mentioned earlier, and this has been a bit of a theme that we keep hammering on, is that great leaders, great performance people, people who have their mojo seem to embrace learning. And it's been said that the quality of our inputs determines the quality of our outputs. And you seem yeah. to have great outputs, which makes me believe that you have got great inputs. How do you, what, what process do you go through on your whiteboard for either allowing time or utilizing time to get the right inputs? Well, so um, you guys know Andrew Griffiths and uh, Andrew Griffiths, the, the business author and all around great guy. And one of the pieces of advice he gave me was don't look at learning or, you know, reading books or, you know, watching content and TED talks. Don't look at that as, as, as a nice to have after your business day is done work that into your business day because that is as important, if not more important than most of the other activities you're doing. So in my little home office that I've built out the back of my place, I have two deck chairs and one of the deck chairs I'll sit in and read and the other deck chair has a pile of books that I'm going to be reading. And then the thing which is most interesting to me is you can read a book nowadays and you can reach out to the author and you can touch base with them on Twitter or LinkedIn and they'll respond to you. And, and, and you know, the, 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 the dynamics have shifted dramatically and that's really, really cool to me that you can, you can get so much more now from the, you know, the, the things that you read, the things you see and you can interact in a different way and you'll find other people who are interested in the same stuff and they'll share stuff with you as well. And then so long as you're, you know, you're up for it, 
you know, you, you can continue to learn forever. And I think that's really, really cool. I love meeting people. Met a chap recently, probably in his late 70s, he's traveling all over the world. And the thing he talks about is he talks about your, um, your third chapter or your third act, actually, is what he calls it. He said a lot of people get to that time of life and they say, well, that's it. You know, I might as well just kind of sit here and, you know, have a cup of tea and wait, wait for nature to take its course. Well, actually, they've got a huge amount of knowledge and experience and value. So how do you connect up those people who are in their third act with those people maybe who are in their second act? that would dearly love to get some of the value from the people in their third act and their networks and all of that sort of thing. So I think if you're in constantly up for that, you're prepared to learn, you're prepared to challenge your, your, your internal biases, you should be okay. There's a business in that. That's cool. Hooking up third act <laughs> yeah. people with second act people. That, that actually is gold. It is, yeah. yeah it and it came, to you, it, it came to you via the Mojo radio show, so 10% of anything <laughs> you make of it comes back to the house. If we can't get Corona and, and what is it, corn chips on board, damn it, we'll find the money some other way. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny, when you uh, mentioned Andy Griffiths, and he is a good mate of the show, he's been on the show, he's a good mate. Well, actually, we will ring him and get him back on the show soon because he's a top bloke, top, top content. But I was a bit scared then when you said, he gave me some really good advice to make to learning. Don't go on the Mojo Radio Show. Don't waste your time. <laughs> Some advice you have to ignore, you know, as well. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> hey, you get to hang out with us for 40 minutes. You've got to be happy with that, right? That's right. But just to close this out, it is interesting, and this is a true story, folks, that uh, prior to Christmas time, I get a phone call from uh, a guy that I had done business with many years ago in Brisbane. He said, I need a good sales guy. And I went, well, that's not me, but I know who'll know. So I did send a note to Andy Griffith saying, mate, who do we know? Give me someone great. And when you talk about, Kian, about being referable, he was recommending you and he was referring you and that's why you are here today. So we really really dig people that we know walking the talk who actually haven't just read a book about it and are talking about it, they're actually doing it. So... um, we, I, I've loved this, mate. I really appreciate everything you've shared, your authenticity, your content, and we wish you luck with giving up beer for a year. I, I don't quite get I can't really get my head around that. Well, there's always scotch and bourbon. I mean, come on, it's not the end of the world. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Hello to all our friends at Corona. Uh, still waiting. Before the wall goes up. Um, Thank you, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Quickly, before you go, you did mention your business, where would you send people? Because I think there will be people, and I know we will post some of your YouTube stuff on our show notes so people can see this stuff because it's terrific on YouTube. Where would you send people to get in touch with you, mate? So you can just head to um, Trinity's website, which is Trinity Perspectives, all one word, .com.au, and uh, all our contact details are there and lots of other stuff to have a look at as well. So um, hopefully they'll get some value from that. Awesome. I'm going out to buy a whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew, I knew you weren't going to say I'm giving up beer. Um, no, yeah. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Put me in the grave. Kian, thank you so much, mate. We, uh, we really appreciate your time. No, guys, it's been my pleasure. Absolutely. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bottle. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. Right. Ladies and gentlemen. So I've got to say, he would have to be one happy man. He's got a business that's killing it. And the Irish rugby team is on top of their game. Yeah, but he's, he can't drink beer. No, well, you know. Well, I wonder if he's on the kombucha. I don't know. Mind you, I tell you what, he was uh, he was an interesting guy away from work. He he is a lot of depth, that guy. I uh, I certainly enjoyed chatting with him and looking forward to meeting him. 
Uh, and a quick shout-out to our friends at Corona and Tim Tams. Um, <laughs> now, we're going to wrap this show with a shout-out. There. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cliche. <laughs> anyway, let, let me try and pull it all together for you, folks. We started a new segment a couple of weeks back, and it was basically our salute to the people who are out there getting stuff done, keeping us safe, making us better, looking after us, educating us. But perhaps we're not overly well paid, and we're certainly not recognised a lot in society. And Paul Stanley from KISS. It was his birthday a couple of weeks ago. The boys from the Dead Days, he sent us a note saying, hey, how about sending out a shout-out to Paul? He sang a song called Shout It Out Loud. So this segment is called Shout It Out, and you can probably tell by the intro where Robbo shook it up a little bit that uh, this week we're shouting out to the police. And these guys definitely deserve our praise. I mean, there are some people out there who join the police force for the wrong reasons, and I guess we have to accept that. But on the majority... These guys are out there every day giving it their all for not a lot of return, don't you reckon? Yeah, it is. Look, I'm not a fan of the Highway Patrol. I mean, I've got too many (laughs) tickets. However, I've got to say, more often than not, if you're polite and you're friendly and you respect the fact they're doing a job and you know you've gotten busted, they they can actually be very helpful when issuing. You still get a ticket, but they could be helpful. And there are situations, I know, this will be controversial and I'm happy to receive the emails and the tweets and everything else. There'll be situations where people go, you're kidding me, aren't you? You're kidding me. However, think about someone who's doing it for the right reasons and think about some of the situations that we see on the news every single day, every single night. You cannot watch the news with your children because of what goes on Somewhere, somewhere in the world, the police are having to go in. They're not well paid. It's part of their gig. They're going in for the right reasons to keep us safe, put things right, look after property. And I got to say, it's a hard gig. Not just a hard job, a dangerous job. You think about the role of honour for all of those that have fallen in the line of duty who have just been out there doing their job as we go about our job every day, but unfortunately have lost their lives in the process. I mean, God, what more could you sacrifice? And our our shout out to the police is the thing that always occurs to me is these guys are going to go into the jungle. They've got to do this job day in, day out. They don't have a choice. The call comes in, they're in the car, they're there. When it's all taken care of, they've got to go home to their family. They've got to go home to their child, to their wife, and they've got to then live in their world and forget what went on. And I I really admire that. And a lot of police carry scars through their career uh, because of the things they see. So um, it is a jungle out there. It's a jungle none of us ever really want to go to, but somebody's got to do it. And to just say salute the police, let's play a little bit of Guns N' Roses. Welcome to the jungle. We're out.
Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.